0: Today's scripture comes to us from Psalm chapter 46, verses 1 through 11. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage and kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes war seas to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. And if by chance you are wondering how to pronounce that last word that Grace read, it's pronounced Selah. And just in case you're wondering if that sounds familiar, it's because we named our fourth child Selah, Selah. Selah. Now that you know, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now as we come before you gathered in this place at the summoning of your Holy Spirit. We ask that we sit at the feet of Jesus as his word is preached. We ask, O Lord, that you would move our hearts to where it would burn with much affection in light of the knowledge of the fact that we are deeply cherished, deeply loved, as well as chosen. Our great destiny because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Father, these past six days we have been witnessed and encountered many things that can be so discouraging and so overwhelming, and yet, Lord, we trust that because you reign and because you are God, you are able to give us peace to where we can truly. Be still before you. And now we ask, Lord, that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people together said, Amen and Amen. At about this time last year, a public debate was held by the organization known as Intelligence Squared. And if you've never heard of Intelligence Squared, they're basically a nonprofit think tank where what they do throughout the country is hold public debates for the public to come and listen to. And the way that they operate is is that they always get two debaters on two different sides of an issue and then they gather a massive audience And before the debate happens, they ask the audience to vote on where they stand on an issue. The reason why they do all this is because according to their mission statement, they're trying to find common ground. They're trying to find something to where we can come together and create unity at a time and place where it just seems that everyone is at each other's throat. There is nothing but public vitriol and divisiveness in our society. And Intelligence Squared is on a mission to try and see if there are some things that can bring us together through rationality discourse. And so, that's what they do. They have these public debates all over the country, and they invite, again, a massive audience, which they try to be representative of the U.S. population. And again, what is so interesting about them is that they have the audience members vote on where they stand on an issue before the debate happens, and then, after the debate is done, they vote again to see if maybe the debate has caused people to change where they stand on a particular issue. And so, on March 27, 2018, down at hunter college not too far from here they hosted a debate that asked this question the more evolved we are the less we need god yes or no the more evolved we are the less we need god yes or no prior to the debate 47 percent of the audience that gathered said yes yes indeed the more evolved we are the less we need god after that debate that group Rose to 67% after the debate. Those who said, no, 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 no. The more evolved we are, the less we no no, that is not true. They voted in prior to the debate at a uh 31% of the audience. After the debate, it shrunk to 26%. And then the remainder of the audience, the undecided, they had the most obvious change. They said undecided at the beginning of the debate at, what, uh, 22%. After the debate, that group shrunk to 7%. The point is clear. This audience, which again is representative of our U.S. culture today, believe that the more evolved we are, the less we need God. And if you're unsure about what they mean by the word evolve, consider what the person who was arguing yes was saying in their opening argument. They said this quote, we're not talking about biological evolution or changes in gene frequency. We're talking about cultural evolution or just the development of humanity and scientific progress over the past several hundred years has completely transformed our knowledge of how the world works. And each major scientific breakthrough has had to overturn some religious dogma. The more our understanding evolves, the less we need God. Now. Using God to explain natural phenomena is an argument known as God of the gaps. Throughout history, if there was a gap in our understanding, it was by default to say God must explain it. But the more science illuminates our world and gives us a real understanding, the fewer gaps are left for God to inhabit. We're beginning a new sermon series today entitled, God as He Is. And just as that title suggests, the point of this series is to consider what the God of the Bible says as according to what the Bible teaches. Why are we doing this series? Well, it goes without saying that a lot of people have many views, many ideas, many opinions about the God of Of the Bible. But what is so frustrating to discover is that many of these views, ideas, and opinions are actually not found in the Bible. You see, we live in a time and age where a person will listen to a podcast, read a blog post, watch a YouTube video, and all of a sudden they're experts on various topics in life, such as the God of the Bible. And what we find to be so frustrating, or at least for me, is that all of the anger, all of the vitriol, all of their frustrations towards the God of the Bible is not really. The God of the Bible that they're describing it's a caricature of the God of the Bible and knowing that many of you have people in your lives who think this way the point of this series is to equip you to educate you so that you can properly inform and even correct the misconceptions that so many people in your various Oikos networks may have about the God of the Bible to where they will come to understand the God as he is and today we kick off this series by taking a look at Psalm 46. Why? Because as we take a look at this very well-known psalm, we'll come to discover that it will challenge the very popular notion that says, the more knowledge you have, the less of God you need. Psalm 46 is actually going to turn that on its head by actually saying that the more you know, the more you will know of God. And more specifically, the knowledge of God will be the most important knowledge you could ever have as a human being. And to further convince you of this, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, the reason we need knowledge. The reason we need knowledge. Number two, the hidden danger of knowledge. And finally, the true hope of God's knowledge. The reason we need knowledge, the hidden danger of it, and the true hope of God's knowledge. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the reason we need knowledge. Now, my wife will tell you that I, I'm a hypochondriac. The moment I have a little tingle in my throat, a prolonged headache, or shortness of breath for beyond what I'm comfortable with, I, to her advice not to, go on Google and start typing up various symptoms. And for the next two hours, I'll start cataloging the various life-threatening diseases that I have. Now, I know just by the way that you're smirking right now, you're thinking, man, my pastor is a weirdo, what a loser. But before you judge, all of you in here do the same thing. Oh, you may not exhibit the behavior of a hypochondriac, but every human being will always seek knowledge in response to fear. Again, every human being will seek out knowledge in context of fear. We see this all the time. You've experienced it throughout your life, have you not? For you college students in here, or for those of you who can remember your college years, you know people, hopefully it wasn't you, who never studied throughout the semester, even though they should have, And then when the fear of a looming final comes upon them, then all of a sudden they crack a textbook and they start trying to absorb as much knowledge as possible, right? Or for those of you who have been parents for a while, do you remember what it was like when you found out that you were pregnant, that your wife was pregnant, right? You might not be readers in nature, but all of a sudden you start buying multiple books, you read articles, you listen to podcasts, you talk to your friends who've been parents longer than you. Why? Because the. fear the terror of raising a child on your own has now inspired you to be a massive massive reader or how about something more superficial you're driving in your car enjoying the weather and all of a sudden you smell odors coming out of your vents that you've never smelled before you feel vibrations under the dash that you never felt before you hear grinding noises that you've never heard and what do you do you immediately take it to the mechanic, a knowledgeable mechanic, in the hopes that you could figure out what is going on. Yes, indeed, life teaches us that one of the main reasons why we seek knowledge is because we are terrified. We are terrified. Fear is a driving impulse for us to know things, to grasp for knowledge. And when you consider what verse 2 and 3 of our passage says, it becomes very obvious that there is a lot of things that we need to know. Read it again with me as it starts off. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the hearts of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, aside from the fact that these two verses are written in a very positive and uplifting tone, nevertheless, it does describe a very terrifying situation, right? earth giving away mountains being moved the heart of the sea waters roaring mountains trembling now i know you could easily dismiss this as pretty much hyperbolic language oh pastor come on this is just a biblical writer using language to over exaggerate just to make a simple point maybe but then again if you consider all the latest studies that have been cranked out especially now about the terrifying effects of global warming. Now, all of a sudden, language that seems so unlikely, seems so overbloated, now feels terrifyingly real, right? Consider these words from an article reporting on the fourth national climate assessment that the Trump administration released just last year. It said this, quote, Global warming will lead to devastating consequences for the economy, public health, a wide variety of already endangered species, and the environment overall. Droughts will get worse, crop scarcity will become more common, and supply chains will be disrupted. The cost of continued inaction, the assessment makes clear, will lead to social disruption, economic damage, and public health impacts on a scale never before witnessed by modern society. Now you're like, oh, come on. Are you kind of one of those left-wing liberals who's all green master? No. No. And actually, if you consider what the Bible has to say on its own terms with regard to the current condition of the globe, you'll come to define that it has a very bleak picture as well as what I just read to you. Consider the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, we're starting in verse 20, it reads this, Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Come on back. According to the Bible, the world that we live in, the very same world that we're raising our children in, according to scripture, is dying. It's decaying, decaying. Meaning there is the presence of death in it. Now, what is the normal and appropriate response whenever you're in the presence of death? It's fear, right? Terror. And we're not just talking about any kind of little fear. No. Paul says all of creation, all of this world, all of the globe, there is this massive fear. That you cannot run away from, that you cannot hide from, that you cannot avoid. There is fear at a global scale that terrorizes. And because that is so, what do you imagine is going to be the most common reaction for people when they are confronted with this massive global fear? Well, I said it already. Knowledge, right? Because again, the most common reaction that people have when they are afraid is what? They want to figure things out. They want to know. They want to figure things out so that they could have a sense of peace. But here lies the question, what is it about knowledge that it's able to cause us to be at peace in the moment of fear? Why knowledge in particular? What's so unique? What's so special about knowledge to where it can have that effect in the context of fear? We'll consider these very wise words from theologian Herman Bobbink, where he says this, Quote, knowledge is power. All-knowing is a triumph of the spirit over matter, a subjugation of the earth to the lordship of man. The more comprehensive the awareness, the more intense the life. The richest life among men is the life of him who knows the most. What indeed is the life of the insane, the naive, the simple, the underdeveloped? It is poor and limited compared with that of the thinker and poet. When you acquire knowledge, when you possess it, what do you have? Power strength. Who are the types of people who are normally associated with these two attributes? The fearless. You ever meet a fearless person? Usually they're a person of great power, of great influence, of great strength, right? And because that is the case, many people like the debaters that I mentioned in my introduction will carry this assumption that says the more you know about the world, the less you'll be terrified of it. The more you know of life, the less you'll be terrified of its darkest, most gloomy, doomy things that it will throw into it. That is what this is saying. But now you need to hear this. If the thing that terrorizes you is at a global scale, that Paul says, as global warming says, do you realize what that means? It means the only way you can overcome this fear is that you have to amass the same level of knowledge to your fear. If your fear is at a global scale, that means you must acquire knowledge at a global scale as well in order to overcome that fear. Get it? In order to ace the final, you need to know everything that that final is going to ask. And when you understand this, now you come to be confronted with the hidden danger of knowledge. What do I mean by that? Well, let me explain by going to my next point. Skip on down and read again with me verses 8 to 9, where the psalmist says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Again, the psalmist talks about the world, or as translated here, earth. But notice his description is different. Where he starts off the passage talking about how scary the world is, he then talks about, how desolate it is, how it's like a desert, specifically the way a place is like desolated after a massive, massive war, kind of like the way Europe was after World War II. Notice in verse 9 that reference to war, okay? And the obvious question that arises is, what happened? How do you go from a world that is scary but therefore sparks the pursuit of knowledge, right, creating hope that you can overcome that fear and yet that pursuit ends up in a condition that is far worse. Wasn't knowledge supposed to create this sense of empowerment, thereby leading you to a life of flourishing? And yet, as we see in this passage, that it did the opposite. People are worse off than they were before they acquired knowledge, before they pursued knowledge. What is going on? How could this happen the answer is found in the second half of verse 9 read it again with me he breaks the bow and he shatters the spear he burns the chariots with fire what a very interesting statement here the psalmist is saying that god is going to one day break the bow he's going to shatter the spear why so that he could do what he's going to do with the chariots burn it all burn it all this idea of god burning the weapons of war is a very unique idea and you only find it in one other place in the Bible. In Ezekiel chapter 39, follow along as I read that passage to you, starting in verse 9. Then the people in the towns of Israel will go out and pick up your small and large shields, bows and arrows, javelins and spears, and they will use them for fuel. There will be enough to last them seven years. They won't need to cut wood for the fields or forests, for these weapons will give them all the fuel they need. Now... Nerd alert. Nerd alert. I'm about to go into some very boring Bible background information. So do your best to stay awake. Take another sip of your coffee right now, okay? Pay attention, okay? I'm very tempted to call out certain names, but I won't, okay? Because I love you guys so much. Pay attention, okay? According to Old Testament scholars, they tell us that this war that's spoken of in verse 39 is a prophetic vision of the final cosmic war between God and Satan that is brilliantly spoken of in the last few chapters of the book of Revelation. Consider these words from a brilliant Old Testament scholar by the name of Meredith Klein. He says this, quote, in his commentary, Ezekiel 38 and 39 proves to be the common source behind Revelation 20, 7 and 10, and the series of passages in Revelation referring to the Antichrist Perusia event. The War of 28 is certainly the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. The Battle of Armageddon, described in 16, verses 14 to 16. In each case, it is the war to which Satan the dragon gathers the nations of the whole world. This universal gathering against the Lamb and the city beloved of the Lord is also referred to as Satan's deception of the whole world through the signs wrought by his agents, the beast, from the sea, and particularly the false prophet. Interesting. So this cosmic war between God and Satan that Ezekiel is prophetically writing about in chapter 39 of his book is also being indirectly alluded to in our passage today with this reference of burning chariots and bows and spears. Coincidence? I think not. Remember who the ultimate author of the Bible is. It's God. The same God who inspired Ezekiel to write his chapter in his book. The same God who inspired the psalmist to write our passage today. You see, God is trying to teach us something specifically about the hidden danger of knowledge. Do you know what the hidden danger of knowledge is? Well, we begin to get the answer to that question when we consider what Apostle Paul says about knowledge in 1 Corinthians 8. Listen to what he says there. Knowledge makes arrogant but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Have you ever been around a know-it-all? Someone who thinks they know everything, but more importantly, you know nothing compared to them? You ever been around someone like that? Of course you have. (laughs) I know I have. And how do you typically feel whenever you're around that kind of person? It's not very pleasant, right? Right? It's not very pleasant at all, okay? You see, knowledge, like any power, can make a person so pompous, so full of themselves, so big-headed to where they can truly overestimate themselves and underestimate other people, just like Satan does in his relationship to God. Here is a being who is created, who has the audacity to think that he has greater power, greater ability than his God who created him, and he's waging war with him. In other words, knowledge can create such a demonic pride to where it can cause you to see yourself as being far superior to someone who truly is far superior to you. Knowledge can have a demonic effect on you to where you're so prideful, to where you think you are far superior to someone who is clearly far superior to you. And we see this all the time. We see this in our setting. We see this in the context where people who tend to be highly knowledgeable, highly educated, well-credentialed at some of the best universities, and yet, ironically, tend to be the most closed-minded to the possibility that there is an existence, someone far superior to them, namely God. Back in 2014, there was a Pew research done to see if there was a correlation between belief in God and knowledge of education. And sure enough, that was there. And you know what that is? The more educated people are the less likely they are to believe in God. And furthermore, at a massive country scale, countries that tend to have more highly educated people tend to be more atheistic, more agnostic. It's so blatant that the people who've done the research are like, wow, this is clearly not a coincidence. The more knowledge that people have, the less inclined they are to believe in God. And that, my friends, is the hidden danger of knowledge to where the more knowledge that you possess, the more tempting it is to be agnostic or even downright atheistic. Now, if you're here today investigating Christianity, you might be feeling a little uncomfortable right now. You're probably thinking, oh my goodness, am I in one of those crazy, radical, fundamentalist churches? Because this preacher sounds like he's saying that he wants everyone to be uneducated and live in the dark ages like in the medieval times and just believe in God, right? No, that is not what I'm saying. I am not saying that at all. And here's why. Consider what happens when you buy into this idea that the more knowledge you have, the more power you have to overcome your fear of the world, and then you combine that with this belief that God does not exist. Can you think of a possible danger that would come from that kind of mixture of ideas? Hmm? Dr. Richard Swenson believes there is a dangerous mixture to it. Dr. Richard Swenson who at one point was associate professor, clinical professor at the University of Wisconsin Medical School, wrote a book not too long ago called The Overload Syndrome. Listen to what he says. Sorry it's a little long, but I think it's a very helpful quote. He says this. There are some who believe the rapidly information superhighway will solve our problems. I don't. As we have seen repeatedly, there are only so many details in anyone's life that can be handled comfortably. When that limit is exceeded, circuits begin to shut down, and we refuse to process anymore. Yet, progress has given us more information in the past 30 years than in all the previous 5,000 years combined. A surprising and discomforting aspect of this incredible information proliferation is that the more we know, the more certainty seems to recede. We had expected that with the progression evolution of knowledge, we would hone in on the truth and finally nail it down. The opposite has happened. Instead of becoming more certain about the truth, we become more insecure. I no longer believe there is a single right answer to a patient's problem. There is only today's answer. Don't misunderstand. I am not a therapeutic nihilist, just a realist who has been around too long and outlived my informational innocence. And unless we can discover ways of staying afloat amidst the surging torrents of information, warned psychologist Dr. David Lewis, we may end up drowning in them. The 1996 router study, Dying for Information, details the increasing common symptoms of the information fatigue syndrome. Anxiety, self-doubt, paralysis, of analytic capacity, a tendency to blame others, time-wasting, and in some cases, illness, end quote. Turns out, the more knowledge you possess, the more afraid you become, not less, right? Because the more you know, yes, it will give you power, but it will never give you the level of power to alleviate your fear of the world. Because the attempt of trying to know everything that you could possibly know under the sun will simply confront you with the awareness that you cannot know everything. It's as Aristotle once said, the more you know, the more you know you don't know anything. When you try to learn everything that you possibly can as an attempt to alleviate the fear of the unknown that is in this world, you're simply going to be faced with mountain loads of information that will leave you in a sense of greater terror than you had before you even knew. This is why people say things like ignorance is bliss. Because the more you know, it's not less terror, but more terror because you realize you are not in control at all. See? Now, when you combine that with some of the anxieties that come from this information fatigue syndrome that he spoke of, you know, anxiousness, illness, tendency to blame others, and then you combine that with this idea that there is no God, there is no final authority who will make things right, and make sure you get justice. I don't know, that sounds like a recipe of some real volatility. I don't know, maybe conflict, war, that could lead to desolation, you see? One of the things that we need to understand is that though knowledge can give us a sense of power, due to our limited capacity, we will never reach the level of knowledge needed in alleviating the fear that we are confronted with as we live in a massive world filled with so many terrors. And when you understand this, then you come to understand not only God being important has to be believed in, but more importantly, if you don't have God, then you are doomed and you're left in your fears. To further explain what I mean, let me go to my final point, the true hope of God's knowledge. Read again our passage, starting in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. If you have a pen or highlighter, underline that phrase in verse 10, be still. Why? Well, for many people, when they read this verse... And they come across that statement, be still. They tend to react to it in a very calm and soothed way. Almost as if this is like the equivalent of a mom talking to a scared child, trying to make them at peace. Shh, be still, honey. Mommy is here. Mommy is here, right? That's how most people read this verse. Be still, God says, and know that I am God. No, that's not what it's saying. That is not what God is trying to communicate. If you understand the original Hebrew, you will know that it's written in a certain grammatical tense that's very much written in a very commanding, provocative tone. And you know what that word that's translated as be still means in the original Hebrew? It means give up, right? Give up. You're surrounded. Give up. You're going to die if you don't, right? Right? A more accurate translation would say, give up and know that I am God. And considering what I've said so far, the message is pretty clear. God is telling the world, give up in your disbelief of me. Give up in your denial of who I am. Instead, recognize who I am. (laughs) Excuse me. Recognize who I am as I say that I am. But here's the question. Who does God say he is? Verse 11. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted over all the earth. God is saying he is the exalted one. Who are the types of people in our society that we tend to exalt? These are the people who overcome. These are the people who dominate. These are the people who conquer, who neutralize the threat, whatever form that threat is in. Why do the gold medals winners in the Olympics stand on the highest podium to where they're the most exalted? Because they have defeated those who would try to overpower him, right? They competed and he conquered. Why is it that champions who win a certain crucial game are hoisted on the shoulders of others? Because they neutralize the threat and they have vanquished anything that could rob them of their honor and they have won. They're the ones in power. They're the ones of significance, God is saying, I am exalted. Not just of the church. Not just of a certain realm. I am exalted over all the earth. I have overcome everything that is terrifying. Everything that is threatening in this world. Now what is God saying about himself when he says this? Isn't he saying, I know everything. I have true power over all the earth over all the nations because I know everything and the implication is so clear what God is essentially saying is this if you want to overcome your fear of this world because it is scary don't try to know everything on your own rather know the one who does know everything again if you want to overcome the fear of the world, you don't try to do it by trying to figure out the world on your own. You go to the one who not only knows everything, but he's actually the one who created it. That is the only way you can have true peace in a world that is beyond your ability to fully comprehend. If you want to know power, it comes with knowing the one who has that power. But herein lies the question How do you know this God? How can you know this God? Again, verse 11, it says, Know that I am God of who? God of Jacob. Not God of Muhammad. Not God of Siddhartha Gautama. Not God of Gandhi. Not God of Zoroastria. But the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. What does that mean? To be the God of Jacob. Warren Weersby. Writes this in his commentary: The Lord calls Himself the God of Jacob, and we remember how often Jacob got into trouble because he got his hands in circumstances and tried to play God. When God says He's the God of the Jacob, God of the ja- God of Jacob, you know what He's saying? He's saying that He is the God of not the enlightened ones, not the beautiful, not the educated. He's the God of swindlers, liars, cheaters backstabbers perverts all of which describe Jacob perfectly in the book of Genesis right he is that God in other words by calling himself the God of Jacob he is saying I am the God of sinners and the only way you can know me is when you approach me with the recognition with the admission With the acknowledgement that you are a sinner. And the only reason why we have a connection isn't because you've done something or discovered something or achieved something that would make you worthy of knowing me. No, I know you, God says, because I am a God of mercy and grace. This, my friends, is not spoken of, it's not even thought of in any other faith but Christianity. Why? Why? Because it's only in Christianity that we find the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel <clears throat> is the message that says, <clears throat> the God of the Bible knows everything. The God of the Bible, according to Scripture, knows everything. And that includes you. Well, there's a lot of things that Google knows about you, right? Right? Facebook knows about you. And let me ask you, how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel safe? Does it make you feel happy and secure knowing that Google can track all your search engine history, all of your catches, all of the things that you've looked up, but no one knew you were online? Google knows a lot about you, but you know what? God knows even more. He knows everything. How does that make you feel? Does that terrify you? It should. You know why? That means he has power over you. And not a docile power. He has the power to shame. He has the power to ruin. He has the power to destroy. He has the power to condemn you. He knows everything there is to know about every single one of you. All of your darkest secrets. All of your darkest skeletons. He knows it all. He is in a profound... Profound position over us. But here's the question. What does he do with that knowledge? Does he use it to create power of destruction? No. He uses it to display the power of his love for you. By coming into this world as Jesus Christ, suffering the full penalty of all of your darkest, deepest secrets, all of your sins, so that you can be fully pardoned, fully forgiven, fully forgiven, So that not only would you have the addition of eternal life after you die, but even before death, your life can change now for the better, right? That is what the gospel teaches us. And it comes only with you recognizing two things. You are a broken sinner, cannot do anything to God or for God that would compel him to love you, and openly acknowledging that he loves you this much with such grace and mercy to where he's willing to forgive you Solely because He is merciful. If you grasp those two things, friends, you have nothing to fear. Though the world falls, though the mountains shake, though it fall into the sea and the waters rage, you have nothing to fear. Not because you know everything, but because you have been given merciful access to the One who does know everything. And He uses that knowledge for your good, for your flourishing. Here's the question. Do you know this God? Have you allowed him to be in your life to where you accept him as he is rather than what you want him to be? I hope and pray that as we continue this series, you would really have this be the foundation of your walk with God. That though you don't know all things, the one who does know all things is for you and is for your flourishing. At this time, I want to talk about some next steps to help you better apply today's message. And that begins with, first of all, those of you here who are not believers in Christ, we welcome you. We thank you that you're with us today. But we ask that if today's message really has sparked something in you to where you're ready to submit your life and recognize that you are a broken sinner and that you desperately need God's mercy, then take this time now, go to God, offer a prayer of repentance and accept Christ as Lord and Savior, as your God as the meaning of your life. And then come talk to me. We would love to help you move forward in your next steps in your Christian faith. Number two, ask yourself, have I fallen into the hidden danger of knowledge? The hidden danger. Of One way you can figure this out, are there certain aspects of the Bible that you find fake, exaggerated, unhistorical because it goes against your, quote, intellectual instincts? If so, that could be a sign that you have fallen into the danger of Pride pride. Number three, how would my life practically change for the better if I really believe that the God who loves me and is for me knows everything? How freeing would you be? And how would that streamline into the various ways that you live your life right now? alleviating whatever anxieties or struggles that you may have. Take the answers to this and share with a trusted friend in your Oikos group and ask them to share them with you. I believe that this is how community is formed. This is how trust and friendship is developed within the people of God. It is by recognizing that together we need to know more of God than we could never find alone. How can you truly be changed and how can you help your brothers and sisters change by what you know of God and what they know of God? I hope and pray that that will begin a wonderful journey of greater depth and greater peace within Let's pray. Father, help us now to understand the truth of today's message. Father, we live in a very terrifying world filled with circumstances and conditions that go beyond our power to navigate or to overcome. And Father, it is so easy to fall into the deception that has been pervaded in so many schools and universities today that say that we are capable of knowing all things and therefore overcoming all that is terrorizing of this world. Father, have mercy on us for such folly for such demonic delusions that we carry in our hearts and our minds. Free us from our ignorance and open our eyes to see that it is only in knowing you that we can find true peace. For it comes in the connection of knowing the one who knows all. And we know that this God is for us who knows all things. Because you have known all things about us that could be used against us. But instead, you've used that knowledge to show if your mercy and love Help us to remember that as we continue to learn more about this life, this world, and the people in it, and more importantly, the one who created it all. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.